You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dunnison, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, I haven't seen you for a while. Yeah. How, how you doing? How was your little vacation? You really uh, refreshed? You know, you know, it turns out when you go on vacation with three kids, I'm not sure that refreshing is the word for no. it. No. You don't get a lot of uh, what I would call R&R. Kind of feels like when you come back, uh, you need a vacation from your vacation. There you go. But it doesn't really work Put that, that on way. a t-shirt. You, uh, you come back and you roll straight back into your, uh, your normal life. No, I saw somebody write this once on some kind of like parenting blog thing that when you have small children, you don't take a vacation. You take a trip. Yeah, that's, that's accurate. That's accurate. Uh, the, trip, the trip was actually fine. I expected the travel to be a bigger pain in the ass than it actually was. Uh, everyone was pretty good. We traveled to Florida to visit my wife's family. Uh, my children regard Florida as a magical land because everyone there has a swimming pool. So they basically just spent, you know, six days in the water. You go to Disney World? No, but my wife and I had the conversation that in the next couple of years, our kids are going to reach peak enjoyment age for Disney World. So maybe the next time, one of these upcoming trips, we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to bite the bullet and go over to Orlando and let the kids feast on, on Disney World. And you guys, in order to keep yourselves interested, just going to dose up on mushrooms. Yeah, I would, I, that's where we ditch them, I think. Yeah. Like, we get them uh, super fired up about Disney World, and then we just sort of slip out a side exit. Go on a high note. Yeah. Yeah. B- before they even notice that we're gone, my wife and I are in Cuba there drinking mojitos. Yeah. And, you know, if they have a lasting memory of their parents on the way out the door, it should be a happy one. Yeah, that's right. Uh, getting their pictures taken with Elsa or whatever. And they look around, we're mom and dad. Drinking mojitos. Havana. Driving around in one of those 1950s cars that you always see in the movies about Cuba. Yeah, there you go. Ben, uh, since it's been a while that we did the co-main event podcast, we got some stuff to catch up on here. Uh, we went ahead and set a date for the upcoming Patreon book club featuring the Chuck Liddell autobiography and the Tito Ortiz autobiography. Yeah, how's your reading going, by the way? Well, since I was in Florida, I got to crack into the Chuck Liddell autobiography a little bit. And, and you and I exchanged emails about this before I left. Uh, I was, I was surprised and delighted to see that the ghostwriter on the Chuck Liddell autobiography is Chad Millman, a guy who used to be, uh, associate editor of ESPN the magazine. So like an actual sports journalist. So, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like maybe 15% because I'm reading it on my Kindle. I'm like 15% of the way into the Chuck Liddell book. Uh, just getting out of his childhood, so I haven't got to the meat of the matter yet. But I'm going to come out and say the Chuck Liddell autobiography is not as bad as expected. Okay. Which is a high compliment in the world of MMA autobiographies. I don't know if I can say the same about the Tito Ortiz book. However, I will say this. It, it explains some things about why Tito is the way he is. And that's really, I guess, all you can really hope for out of one of these autobiographies. Get a little insight. There's some some tear-jerking moments in there. And then there are some just straight-up baffling moments from a narrative perspective. But either way, I think it's going to give us a lot to talk about. Okay, so what day are we going to drop the special Patreon book club podcast episode for the people who we hope are reading along with us? 
I think we really can't do this on any other day except for Friday the 13th, July 13th. That puts an ominous tone to it, I'll, yeah. I'll be honest with you. Yes. Uh, so I guess the kids at home need to know what is expected of them. If you go ahead and read either the Chuck Liddell autobiography or the Tito Ortiz autobiography, or if you are a hashtag shit-eating wild man, read both them bad boys. I've seen somebody talking about doing both, so it's happening. You know, write up a little book report for us. Your, 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 you know, your uh, perception of the books, like what your takeaway was. Yeah, this, Favorite moments. Uh, this was actually one of the highlights for me when we did the Bar Brawler, the Tank Abbott novel. Yeah, we got good responses. People's questions and analysis and points they made after reading the book uh, gave us a lot to think about and to talk about. And I will say this. I'm interested in, in questions, comments, concerns from people who have read the book and just didn't even give it a shot. I, I want to hear from all those people. Again, though, you got to be down with the, the CME Patreon in order to participate in this special book club episode. Uh, but man, whether you read the book or not, I think you're going to be glad that you did, glad that you got in on this one. So uh, you got to get those responses to us before July 13th, obviously, because that's when we will be recording and publishing the podcast. So read up, get your homework done, and get those in. Oh, another thing I was going to mention, uh, this past week, rather serendipitously, from uh, our friends over at MMA Bobblehead, we got two Chuck Liddell, autographed Chuck Liddell bobbleheads, and I am prepared to send those bad boys out as gifts to the people who give us the best book reports. Wow. So there you go. little yeah. uh, incentive for you to put a little elbow grease into your homework. Also, for uh, Patreon subscribers, we're looking at doing another uh, Brunch of Champions streaming uh, event around the kind of weigh-in type time on July 6th. As you will note on the calendar, there is a UFC uh, kind of Ultimate Fighter finale July 6th that evening. And then they're, you know, they're doing the big 4th of July kind of weekend where uh, you got that on Friday, and then you got UFC 226, 226 Stipe. Red, red, white, and fight week? Red, red, white, and fight week. Uh, only two events this time instead of three events on three days. But you got Stipe Miosic versus Daniel Cormier going down that Saturday night. So uh, Friday morning around 10, 11-ish in the One True Time Zone, we'll get together for a streaming event for pa Patreons where we'll talk about you know the fights to come that night and also the weigh-ins for the fights to come the next day. Uh, maybe check in on everybody's reading progress, see how we're doing since we'll be a week out from the, the book club episode. Uh, but yeah, circle that one on the calendar as well. We got a lot of cool stuff coming up. We got some t-shirts that we're going to be giving away. We're going to be giving away those bobblehead, Chuck Liddell bobbleheads. Uh, so you won't want to miss the stuff that's coming up from the co-main event podcast, but let's move on to new business. For, before you move on, okay. one thing you one want to more point thing. out, one speaking more thing. of Chuck Liddell, yeah. you know where Chuck Liddell is this week? Or he was, at least this weekend? Uh, at the World Cup? Kalispell. What? Kalispell, Montana. Get out of here. What's Chuck Liddell he, doing up there? Well, I have it. my well-placed source in the, the Northwest Montana MMA Jiu-Jitsu gym scene tells me that Chuck Liddell goes up there a lot. He has some kind of, one of those rich dudes in Whitefish. is a big buddy of Chuck Liddell's. Brings him out all there all the time. Stopped into the SBG gym in Kalispell. Here's a picture. I'm going to oh, say. There he is. Looking thick, tight, he's kind like, of vascular. He's looking like a guy you wouldn't want to tangle with in a uh, Bellator senior circuit fight. Look at his, look at his arms. Yeah. He, it's like he invented new veins. Yeah, no, he's, uh, he found out where the gym was, and he's, uh, he's been doing curls. 
Still doing that uh, hang loose hand signal, though. I mean, that's just a reflex at this point. He's just looking like he's ready to poke somebody in the eye with that thumb. If he dies in a, a car accident, that's the, the position they'll find his corpse in. All right, Ben, it's been a few. It's been two weeks since we did the co-main event podcast. We obviously missed UFC 225, so we got a grip of stuff to catch up on. And because of that, we're going to go ahead and do all questions considered on this episode of the co-main event podcast. We're not going to do our normal round structure. Just there's, there's too much stuff out there begging for it. Begging for our uh, our commentary, so uh, we're going to let the readers, the listeners of the Co-Main Event Podcast dictate uh, the flow of this show, and I guess my question for you is, are you ready to get into it? Not really. I feel like I'm rusty. I don't even know how to podcast anymore. Well, we never really, it couldn't be said that we were masters, just kind of feeling our way along. Just shaking out the ring rust. You going to help right me now. read these? You got the list over there? I got the list. All right, let's start out with the uh, the Great Dane. This one's from the Great Dane. He writes... Can we be done with the CM Punk thing? I was there, and it kind of sucked. Well, I like how we're starting off with something very succinct. Also, is this friend of the podcast Aaron Dane? I believe is, so. Is he now trying to rebrand himself as the Great Dane? Well, he's been emailing us under that name for a while. Oh, has he? Yeah. Because yeah, I happen to know, he just by following him on social medias, he and his wife were at this event. Yes. We even saw a picture of his wife uh, with BJ Penn and Matt Hughes. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that as well. Unlikely friends, BJ Penn and Matt Hughes. This uh, this event was over there at the United Center in Chicago. Ben, we got our second look at Phil Brooks, the chick magnet punk, fighting in the pay-per-view curtain jerker against Mike Jackson. He ultimately concedes a unanimous decision. 30-26 is across the board. Uh, I think we could talk about the performance of CM Punk, the performance of Mike Jackson, uh, and then maybe Dana White's response to it. Let's start with CM Punk since he's the uh, the marquee attraction. I'm putting that in quotes here for the UFC 225 opener. The problem with CM Punk is that his first time out against Mickey Gall was so terrible that it's hard to know, actually, after watching 15 minutes of him against Mike The Truth Jackson, how much he has improved. That's since true. Then. Because yeah. we saw nothing. We yeah. saw him throw a looping punch and then make an oh shit face when Mike, Mickey Gall shot in to take him down, and it was basically over after that. So here we get three full rounds of CM Punk in the UFC. Ben, what were your impressions? <sighs> Worse than I thought, I guess. Really, you thought you thought wor- I thought better than I thought in terms of like uh, just looking like a, a guy who kind of knew what he was doing. Like, didn't look like he was going to win any fights. He looked like a 39-year-old man who was out there in his second ever MMA fight. Right. I mean, he, he could approximate some general movement that looks similar to MMA fighting, but they sent him out there against the most hand-picked opponent they True. could find. They sent him out there against a working journalist. Yes. Right? Let's be honest about <laughs> who Mike Jackson is. And he pulled off, like, what? maybe two or three successful offensive moves throughout the entire fight. And, I, and I'm counting a near triangle choke. And, I'm, and when I say near, I'm doing this thing with my fingers. Near. Near triangle choke. I'm going to give him that in the offensive move category. Other than that, he didn't really do much. Yeah, he looked to me like there was some athleticism there, though. Like, he threw he threw a couple of explosive punches. They did not They did not score, like... Uh, I'm not going to say he looked effective on the ground, but when he like threw up the triangle choke attempt, I thought that it was, uh, you know, game <laughs> I'll say, uh, I've said all along that I'm not going to fault CM Punk for 
being a big mixed martial arts fan who then, you know, wants to have a couple fights. And in addition to that, I'm not going to fault him that the UFC wanted to give him a bunch of money for those fights, right? I think that that, that him choosing to have those fights in the UFC was understandable from CM Punk's perspective. Like, you're going to take the most money yeah. that you can get to have those fights. Uh, but I also said from the beginning, look, you're dealing with a guy who's at the tail end of his athletic life, a guy who you know showed some athleticism earlier in his life as a professional wrestler, though, as I think I said during the last show, the style that CM Punk wrestled was not necessarily one where he blew you away with his athleticism. Uh, but he was a guy who, like, you know, he had an athletic career before this one, although admittedly not as part of a competitive sport, more of like a performative sport. And I always thought, man, it is a tall order for like a 36, 37, 38-year-old man to come into a sport as athletic as mixed martial arts and just think that he is going to be able to get anywhere near competition ready in the UFC. It's like when a guy, an old guy is kind of like, ugh. Maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll take up golf, get my PGA card. Maybe I'll get on the PGA tour if I take up golf. Yeah, like I don't know that that's how it works. No, well, I'll be, well, and the only problem I like you said I don't also don't blame him for doing it for getting as much money as he can to do it. I did get annoyed, and I guess this will take us into the other aspects of the conversation about Mike Jackson and Dana White's response. I get annoyed at the the specially procured standard people wanted to apply to this. Especially people, again, they said it about the last fight, said it about this one, and it's even less true this time of, well, he did something that all these other people wouldn't do. Yes, they would. For a half a million dollars, like guaranteed, probably closer to a million once like all things were considered from the Mickey Gall fight. Who knows about this one because uh, rumors for the pay-per-view buys are pretty low. But for half a million dollars, a lot of people would fight Mike Jackson. I would say both the people sitting at this table will fight Mike Jackson for half a million dollars. Well, so that part to me, like where you want to just be like, hey, we're playing MMA fantasy camp and we're applauding the guy for showing up. Like by the virtue of showing up, he has just dazzled everybody. Uh, And yet for Mike Jackson, he merely steamrolled the guy to a completely lopsided decision, did not put him away. And everybody wants to act like he's an asshole for it. I don't I don't understand how that those dueling standards work. Right. And I saw someone make the point on Twitter that CM Punk is a guy who came to mixed martial arts as uh, a person who was also already sort of financially set. And he basically got the opportunity to go to uh, Rufus sport in Milwaukee and train for how many years now? Three or four at least. Uh, and as far as we know, kind of do nothing else. Cause the guy's, you know, he was on that MTV show. Doesn't have to support himself. Uh, whereas Mike Jackson while, you know, a quote-unquote competitive MMA fighter, a guy who who has been, you know, training and competing in mixed martial arts for a while, you know, didn't get his pay, didn't get paid as much as CM Punk, probably had to work at his job while he was getting ready for this fight, and then at the end of the day, dominates and and gets all the criticism, which seems like kind of a backwards way to treat the end of this fight. Dana White was very uncomplimentary uh, toward Mike Jackson. What did you think of the tactics of Mike Jackson? I'll tell you what, when I watched this fight, like I didn't necessarily think that he was, was showboating that much. Like, you know, when he's on top and he's, and he's delivering strikes on the ground against CM Punk, there's some razzle dazzle there. Obviously he's putting a little, a little showmanship behind it, but it almost looked to me like he was, he was like throwing exaggerated feints almost like not necessarily, he's not necessarily like standing up doing the windmill, right? With one arm 
to, to let you know the punch is coming and then jabbing you with the other arm. Right. And also, like, as he said afterwards and other people said that, that some of that is just kind of like the way he tries to fight just generally. That he's trying to be really relaxed and uh, also I, I, I buy his explanation afterwards of like, well, yeah, maybe there were opportunities there where I could have really gone hard after the finish, but some of those would have given him an opportunity to win. And you can't be the guy who gets beat by CM Punk. I mean, I get that. And I also, like, if I were him, I would be pretty annoyed and baffled by, like, people are so impressed with CM Punk uh, just for walking in the building and bleeding for three rounds and then so mad at Mike Jackson, also an 0-1 fighter, for not doing way, way better than that, which just makes no sense to me. It's also uh, Dana White saying, like, well, hey, how can you not respect CM Punk's toughness um, but Mike Jackson is a fucking idiot. Well, why did he have to be so tough? Because Mike Jackson was punching him in the head over and over again. Like, how can you say that you respect one guy's toughness, but you don't respect the other guy for beating the shit out of him to therefore make him prove that toughness? Those things just don't go together at all. Are we done with CM Punk in the UFC? Yeah. Okay. You know what, though? Uh, if the question about, like, are we done with CM Punk just in general? If And obviously, CM Punk does not care about making you or I respect the hell out of him. But I would respect the hell out of CM Punk if he goes and he fights on a local scene somewhere. Anywhere. Just fight somewhere else. Just, hey, if this was something really you were on a martial arts personal journey, you wanted to see what you could do in this sport, you wanted to push yourself and, and become a fighter, keep at it. Fight somewhere else. Fight fight on a small show somewhere. And then we'll be like, okay, yeah. you're really about well, that life. Because that's what you would do. Right? Yes. If you wanted to be an MMA fighter and this wasn't just a cash grab, you would go fight. Somewhere on the regional scene. All right, next question. This one comes from Mike Bold. Is there anything Greg Hardy could do to make people comfortable with him fighting in the UFC? Would showing remorse at this stage even cut it? So Greg this, Hardy yeah. then goes out there, beats Austin Lane on the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series via 57-second knockout to get uh, signed into the UFC with some stipulations that I think we'll talk about during this discussion. But anyway... Uh, in his first professional fight, gets a win, gets a big knockout victory, and earns a UFC contract. We had some people, some foreigners, some some of our overseas listeners, God bless them, uh, wrote, also wrote in to say, we don't even know who Greg Hardy is. What's the huh. hubbub? So okay. just a quick uh, a quick explanation of, of who Greg Hardy is. Uh, a former professional football player, a really good NFL football player who played on the defensive line at a position – uh, where players are sort of at a premium, guys who are really good and have the size and athleticism to compete uh, and be dominant as defensive linemen in the NFL are worth a lot of money. So circa 2014, Greg Hardy was a Pro Bowl player, which is an all-star player in the NFL for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, and then he was arrested on domestic violence charges. And while he was awaiting trial, some photographs of the uh, – of the damage, the the injuries that he allegedly inflicted on his then-girlfriend came out in the media, and it kind of made Greg Hardy an infamous figure in the mainstream sports landscape. Uh, the actual legal ins and outs of Greg Hardy's case are weird. He right. was convicted by a judge yeah, in, a in, bench North, trial. in a bench trial in North Carolina, but then appealed, and upon appeal had his charges dropped and expunged from his record because the woman that he allegedly beat up wouldn't cooperate with investigators. She wouldn't come in and testify, and there were reports at the time, though unconfirmed, that she had reached a financial settlement with Greg Hardy uh, in effect that he paid her to, to go away. Right. So and there you have Greg his, Hardy. And his conviction was overturned as a result of that. Um, but also part of it, 
and it just gets to the question here, was that when Greg Hardy was given his second chance uh, with the Dallas Cowboys, and there was that moment where he's in the locker room talking about upcoming game and how they're going to come out guns blazing, yeah. which, as several people noted at the time, he had, as part of this domestic violence incident, allegedly thrown his girlfriend on a futon that was covered in like semi-automatic rifles. So the guns blazing thing struck people as being particularly remorseless. His his comments since then, he has proclaimed his innocence. Uh, when confronted with the pictures and asked, okay, what about these? He said before, well, hey, pictures can be made to look like whatever. So the question about like wood showing remorse at this stage you have to take into account the fact that he's gotten to this stage without showing really any remorse and even if you watch the uh dana white contender series little pre-fight hype package that they put together they acknowledge some legal troubles they never say what it was you know they show like b-roll of him walking up the courthouse steps in a suit but they don't say what he's there for and he's kind of referencing this uh these checkered past kind of things that you know the way they like to phrase that stuff without ever actually explicitly naming it and there's a part where he was saying you know the worst day of my life is when that meaning his nfl career was taken from me and then he, he kind of catches himself and he's like when i gave it away i mean and then i was never i was not able to perform and make people happy which is what i like to do and it's like that seemed like a window into how he views this thing right. it did not seem like we have yet to hear him say anything like hey i made a huge mistake it was wrong. Uh, I, I hope to try to figure out how I can atone for that and move on with my life. Which, honestly, I'm not saying that that would make people totally comfortable with him fighting in the UFC, but it wouldn't hurt. Although, at this point, it would seem like, well, you're just doing it to get everybody off your back. Right. And, like, you know, as it pertains to Greg Hardy's entrance into the UFC, I think it's important to remember that this is a guy who, as I said, uh, played a position in the NFL where athletes are at a premium. And he was so, he was an all-star. He was one of the best players in the league. And by 2016, none of the NFL's 32 teams would have him under contract. So there you go with the end of Greg Hardy's NFL career. But he comes over to MMA, uh, and, and it's any old dirtbag can do MMA. I mean, it doesn't, it sort of underscore the idea that any notoriety that you bring to the table that may or may not encourage people to buy a ticket either to cheer you or to see you potentially get beat up like makes you opens the door for you like yes. it almost doesn't matter what it is like you can be a former professional wrestler like cm punk who athletically probably has no business being in the ufc or you can be greg hardy a guy who you know might walk in the door as the best athlete in the heavyweight division but has all of this like ugly personal baggage like either of those things are like in as far as of the people who want to make money off you as a fighter, positives, which is to me a, a really weird commentary on on what we're all doing here. Yeah, and though at the same time, uh, I think that this is kind of how the fight game has been forever. I, I don't know if that's anything new specific to mixed martial arts. I think that that's just how any kind of pro fighting situation has always been. Uh, I think I, I'm interested in people's response to this because you know it seemed like. MMA media people cared more about this than at least the the more vocal fans. It's always surprising to me too because you look at the UFC roster and you will have you know women on the UFC roster who have been victims of domestic violence themselves. You will have members of your audience who have been victims of domestic violence, so they're going to have some strong feelings about this. And then you know the response from UFC management is kind of like, "Hey, this guy's paid his dues. He's moving on. MMA has helped him turn his life around." Even though it's clear, you know, they don't really care about the 
force for good that MMA can be in Greg Hardy's life. They care about trying to make a buck off of Greg Hardy. The reaction from fans who seem to want to defend him seems to fall into two categories. One is, um, hey, what about second chances and the possibility for redemption? If you do one bad thing, does that mean you get punished for it for the rest of your life? And two, um, everybody should get the opportunity to make a living. And to me, I mean, I get number one. That makes sense to me. But again, then you have to ask the question about like, if you are not asking for forgiveness, how is it really redemption? Just being good at a, a second sport is not redemption because the thing you were never in, you were never in trouble for being bad at sports. That was not the thing that people were angry at you CM about. CM Punk is in trouble for being yes, bad at CM sports. CM Punk is in trouble for that. Uh, Greg Hardy is not. So like, if you don't have that kind of atonement and like an admission like that you were wrong, that's hard for that to be redemption just because you're good at a new sport now. Yeah. The second part about like, well, hey, if you can do this job, then why shouldn't you be able to do it? It's weird to me because we have already decided as a society in various ways, there are certain things that you can do that if you do the wrong thing, it will disqualify you from holding certain jobs. Right. No go, one's go saying, ask Chilson and why he can't be a real estate right, agent. Right, exactly. No one's saying that people like Greg Hardy shouldn't be able to earn a living. People are saying people like Greg Hardy should perhaps not be able to earn a living as a professional mixed martial arts At fighter. this one thing. Like right. the one thing that you might not be able it's to like do. It's like if you get busted for selling opioids on the streets, like you could still go on to turn your life around and have a career. But probably not as a pharmacist. Yes. Right? You're probably not going to be able to be a pharmacist if you are a previously a drug dealer. Uh, so let's talk about the weird, like, kind of the plan for Greg Hardy, right? Because Dana White has said, yeah, he wants to sign him to a UFC contract, but then, and I believe these are Dana White's words, build him up. Yes. Fighting outside the organization. Right. Which is a thing that we have not really seen before. Well, like, they've done it somewhat, but not with somebody like where they're basically signing him to a development. But like, you could have done that with CM Punk. You could have done it with Paige Van Zant. Hell, man, you could have done it with Brock Lesnar, honestly, like years ago. Why, is this an, uh, uh, an instance of the UFC like learning from its past and being like, hey, if we got, we've got this person that could be a big star, let's take some time to build them up the proper way. Or is this like an instance of Greg Hardy like being, in the eyes of the promoter, that's special. Um, I think maybe a little of both because for one thing, you might feel like you have the time to build him up. He's what, like 29? So it's not like... I believe he turns 30 next month. uh, It's not like something where with CM Punk, if you were going to be like, okay, let's build him up slowly, the next thing you know, time's up and you don't get to do it anymore. Especially a heavyweight who's just about to turn 30, you, you probably do figure that you have a little bit of time. Uh, I also think maybe some of it is to get people used to the idea of Greg Hardy in the UFC in stages mm-hmm. so that it's not – you know you, you let some of the controversy seep out just by getting people used to it. And the, the idea is just not really as new anymore and so people kind of get tired of beating you over the head about it and then maybe Dana White figures he won't have to answer the same questions over and over again and be forced to admit that he was a hypocrite when he said that you don't – come back from putting her hands on a woman when he was talking about Floyd Mayweather. Uh, so I think that there's some all of that going on. But it does seem like the UFC looks at Greg Hardy and says, okay, super athletic heavyweight who's not super old like the rest of the division, let's not screw this up. Next question this week comes to us from Chris Duncan who writes, 
since I assume you'll be discussing a fake athlete, Robert Whitaker, and Colby Covington in rounds one through three, joke's on you, Chris Duncan, uh, how about that Holly Holm? Looks like Amanda Nunes wants to fight her, and I can't think of a bigger fight at the women's 135-pound division right now. She has a pretty hoss-like performance when she took out Megan Anderson, a much larger woman, to the woodshed. If she beats uh, Amanda Nunes, how big is a Holm-Cyborg rematch? Moreover, what is her place in the annals of women's combat sports history? So, Ben... Uh, Holly Holm, the former women's bantamweight champion, gets a unanimous decision win. All these fights, UFC 225 main card, decision-erific. Decisions from top to bottom. Uh, Holly Holm beats Megan Anderson 30-27s, 30-26 times two uh, in a feather women's featherweight fight. Uh, her first non-title women's featherweight first fight. First non-title women's featherweight fight. And I guess for Holly Holm, this is just sort of a... a Oh, you must have forgot kind of performance. Yeah. Megan Anderson comes into the UFC as the former Invicta uh, women's featherweight champion. Uh, they've been trying to get her a fight for a while, but because I believe of injuries uh, and things like that, she hasn't been able to make her debut. Here she gets kind of a tough order in her UFC debut against Holly Holm. Uh, and, and Holly Holm has a pretty good performance, and I will say a performance where Holly Holm was able to show her all-around skills because she gets stung early on in this fight a couple of times on the feet, in fact, by Megan Anderson. And it seemed like Holly Holm sort of decided, okay, well, we don't want to do too much of that. Uh, and, and sort of switched up what she was able to do. Uh, went with more of a clinch slash takedown top control sort of game plan and ends up winning the unanimous decision. Uh, Ben, where does this leave Holly Holm for you, both in terms of what she should do for her next fight and how we look at her in terms of, uh, the short history of the UFC women's, uh, divisions? Yeah, it's a tough one because, you look at her right now, and she kind of seems like the second best fighter in two divisions, and can compete in either one of them. Uh, you can do a lot with Holly Holm. She's maybe your most versatile asset right there if you're the UFC. And yet, uh, you know, could you plug her into a fight with Amanda Nunes? Yeah, sure. I I'd watch that. Uh, and then could that eventually convince people to want to watch uh, Holm Cyborg too? I mean, the closest fight we've seen Cyborg have, uh, especially in recent years. Yeah. I'd watch either one of those, and yet it still feels like we're all kind of looking at Holly Holm as a versatile bridesmaid. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, if you go ahead and you have her fight Amanda Nunes, and then you have her fight Chris Cyborg, uh, again, a rematch against Chris Cyborg, at that point we are basically admitting that we're having all like a Holly Holm round-robin tournament, yeah, right? So it's like, well, you got Ronda Rousey. Who are you going to get her to fight? Eh, we'll, have a, we'll have her fight Holly Holm. Well, then you got Misha Tate. Who's she going to fight? Holly Holm, Valentina Shevchenko, Jermaine Durandamy, Chris Cyborg, Megan Anderson, Amanda Nunes. I think you make the, the correct point, Ben, that it seems like perhaps Holly Holm's biggest strength at this point is that she's the most versatile uh, women, woman on the UFC roster because she can jump back and forth between those two divisions. So I guess that speaks uh, both to Holly Holm being a pretty goddamn good fighter in that you're just going to throw her out there against whoever the best happens to be in those two divisions. And also maybe reinforces the idea uh, that you're not dealing with the deepest talent pools here at either of these divisions. Uh, but I, but no one's going to come out and say Holly Holm doesn't deserve it because she obviously does. She's, she's just that good. And like I said, against Megan Anderson proved that she can win a number of different ways and uh, has not fought Amanda Nunes yet. So, so why the hell not? How do you like her chances in that fight? Not great. Not, Probably really. not great. I mean, she got, she often does well against uh, a true. much more aggressive that's fighter. That's true. Like Amanda Nunes 
her style is kind of tailor made for Holly Holm to fight her. I guess even though she hasn't become a big pay per view draw like we thought she might, and the UFC hasn't arguably done all that much to sort of promote her. Uh, if nothing else, Amanda, Amanda Nunes has proved in her last couple of fights that she has a vice grip on that women's bantamweight championship right now. And it would be a surprise, I think, even though Holly Holm, I think, is probably going to have a, a slight size advantage, it would be a surprise to me to see Holly Holm come in there and, and beat her. Yeah, it's true. And also, Amanda Nunes has just been getting better and better. Right. I think that's one of the things you saw in the last fight is that she still has room for improvement. Um Next question here comes from Curtis Bouchard, who writes, Don't forget to discuss your boy Curtis Razor Blades and his big win over Alistair Overeem. Where do both guys go from here? So Curtis, Curtis on Curtis here for this question. Curtis Bouchard. Well, this is Curtis with a K talking right. about Curtis with a C. I'm just saying it seems like there's a little Curtis solidarity going on here. Okay. Fair anyway, enough. 1980s private investigator Curtis Blades goes v- out there. Video game character, Curtis the Razor Blades gets, from Parts Unknown. Gets a third round TKO victory over Alistair Overeem on a fight that went down as the uh, preliminary main event. The featured prelim on Fox Sports 1 prior to the uh, to the UFC 225 pay-per-view broadcast, which we talked about the, on the last show. This is a good performance. A, go- a really good performance from Curtis Blades. Obviously the biggest win of his UFC career thus far, despite the fact that he came into this fight ranked number four uh, at heavyweight. He did? Yeah, I know, right? So, like, you think of Are Curtis... Are sure? Yeah, he, yeah, I'm sure. You think of Curtis Blades, and I don't think this is incorrect, we think of Curtis Blades as being somewhat unheralded in this division, but then he beats Alistair Overeem and afterwards gets on the mic and, and short and to the point says, I'm next for whoever uh, emerges from Stipe Miocic versus Daniel Cormier with the title. And that's not really outlandish. No, especially like, after the way he opened up Alistair Overeem's face. Yeah. That was a brutal finish. Uh, you know, you could argue the first couple rounds, maybe some some sleepy moments in there, and then he just explodes there uh, kind of midway through the third. And you saw kind of sh- similar shades of what he was able to do against Mark Hunt, where Curtis Blades, one thing that really serves him well in the heavyweight division is he can take a shot. You can rattle him, you can you can rock him, get him on wobbly legs, but then he can always nab a takedown, it seems, when he really needs one to, to get himself out of trouble. He did it against Mark Hunt, where it looks like he was teetering on the, the border to the Dark Lands. Had a couple moments like that against Alistair Overeem, and then finds the finish late in the fight. Um, you're right that it seems, though, like the heavyweight division right now, where we're all going to have a lot of fun watching Stipe and Daniel Cormier do a super fight kind of thing. Uh, we're talking that Brock Lesnar mess like we always do every time he gets near the end of a, a WWE contract or something. Uh, we're just going to pretend like he wasn't suspended by USADA, I guess, and could just jump back in there whenever we want. Uh, it seems really easy for a guy like Curtis Blades to end up just getting completely forgotten even by the UFC. Yeah, but I think we should not forget, though, that Curtis Blades' only professional loss is to Francis Ngannou in a fight that was Curtis Blades' UFC debut. Uh, and I, and I and remember. Doctor Stoppage, I believe, too. Yeah, Doctor Stoppage. I remember when I talked to fight analyst Patrick Wyman while I was working on the feature story that I did about Francis Ngannou. And in the course of our conversations, he told me, I think Curtis Blades is going to be a really good UFC heavyweight. And I had not really considered all that much about Curtis Blades to that point. So when he said that, I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. So then, you know, went back, paid a little bit more attention to Curtis Blades. And I, you know, you can't doubt Patrick Wyman on that issue for starters. And secondly, you see Curtis Blades now, 27 years old, which basically makes him a baby in the UFC heavyweight division, 6'4", 255 pounds, out there looking every bit as as physical as Alistair Overeem in this fight. Junior college wrestling national champion, clearly has the power to stop people 
with his elbows, with his fists. I don't know, man. I feel like I'm a little bit on board right now with Curtis Blades as as a you know because of his potential longevity, if nothing else. Like you, Curtis Blades could be around for another decade <laughs> before he starts getting even up to the age where we start to consider UFC heavyweights like old. He wouldn't even be old in ten years; he'd be thirty-seven. At which point we'd be like, "Well, ten years from now, Curtis Blades will be old." To be still a year younger than Alistair Overeem is right now. As for that part of the question, where do you think Alistair Overeem goes? He's thirty-eight, has taken some some bad ones in recent years. You know, this one to Curtis Blades, where he just got his whole shit broke. That. KO to Francis Ngannou where he nearly got his head knocked off are we at the risk of prematurely announcing the demise of a guy like Alistair Overeem or is he just going to remind us hey in heavyweight you're always in it just because we don't have enough people to let go a guy like Alistair Overeem who still has a name and could still win a few fights yeah I mean I don't think we're announcing his demise and he is like Alistair Overeem like you said is always going to be the kind of guy who's going to be hanging around the title picture if you know as an injury fill-in, if nothing else, just because he's Alistair fucking over him. But at the same time, I felt like this loss to Curtis Blades was like another and perhaps definitive reminder of how less formidable Alistair Overeem is now than like when he came into the UFC. Because basically he came into the UFC, and I believe UFC 141 against Brock Lesnar, uh, as like the most dominant heavyweight on the planet. Yeah, but that was that was Uberim. Right, yeah, I was talking about a, a, like a different dude in a lot of ways. Uh, but at the same time, like goes out there, fights Brock Lesnar in his UFC debut. And by the way, looking back on it, forcing, I don't know, forcing is the right word, but having Brock Lesnar fight Alistair Overeem in Lesnar's return fight from diverticulitis when he was out for like 13, 14 months. What are we doing? UFC matchmakers? Like, what's that about? But nonetheless, I digress. Alistair Overeem pretty much puts on a hoss like performance, to borrow a phrase from an earlier email, emailer against Brock Lesnar, and you think, holy shit, there's a new sheriff in town. And then obviously he fails a drug test in advance of his fight against Junior Dos Santos and all that, and the rest is sort of history. But like watching him against Curtis Blades, where he comes into the fight weighing less than Curtis Blades, and kind of being like, uh, you know, Curtis Blades kind of out-physicaling him, having more physicality than Alistair over him, reminds me at least that, you know, at 38 years old, we are dealing with just a different Alistair Overeem than we've seen, you know, for a while. 38 years old and, yeah, also uh, 60 goddamn MMA fights. Plus, yeah. plus a few kickboxes. A lot of wear on the tires there for Alistair Overeem. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here okay. because I want to get this question in before we start uh, dealing with time issues. From Dan Kamen, who writes, I would be comfortable in my expectation that you gents will spend an entire round discussing the brutal artistry that was Knuckles versus Soldier of Dog, but since Chad farted off on vacation and we didn't even get a CME last week, yep. well, nothing is certain. So just in case you're, you plan to pull a fast one and go in some different direction with this week's show, don't. Stop what you're doing and talk Whitaker versus Romero right now, please and thank you. Well, I appreciate that Dan Kamen getting us back on track. Yeah, keeping us keeping us honest. Here, because it would have been all too easy for us to get caught up in all this extracurriculars and forget about the wonderful display of violence that was Bobby Knuckles versus the Cuban Muscle Crisis. And it really was, right? Especially that third round is just was just shit got lit. You know, <laughs> did, first the first two rounds in this thing, you have Robert Whitaker out there looking like he's scoring a goddamn masterpiece, right? Uh, and I will say, now that we're two fights into a Robert Whitaker versus Yoel Romero series, uh. It seems like Bobby Knuckles has a fairly able game plan about how to beat Yoel Romero 
and that is stay in his face, stay in stay in his face with kicks a lot early in that round, early in the first two uh, rounds of this fight, kind of befuddling Yoel Romero, busting him up. Is it also uh, part of the game plan to get injured super early on in, in both fights? Well, I mean, that's what you wonder, like how this thing would go if if Robert Whitaker didn't didn't end up getting injured. Uh, He's basically limited, can't use his right hand for most of the fight. But it's also a reminder, like, you can go out there and have a great game plan and be the best middleweight in the world, which I think Robert Whitaker is at this point, and you all Romero's still going to sting you if he gets the chance. Well, but, uh, you know, the part that, or the thing that I took away from this is for a 27-year-old fighter, and, you know, now the, the kind of ensconced as the middleweight champion, Robert Whitaker has a remarkable poise. Yeah. Because one thing you see in this fight, not only does he break his hand, breaks his right hand in the first round uh, from what he said afterwards, and then nearly gets put to sleep later on in the fight. A couple times. And never never panics, never loses his composure, is always right there in the fight, and always has this way of kind of acting about no matter what happens, like, okay, this is just another thing that I expected to have happen in the fight, and we're right. just going to deal with it. You You can never look at the guy and tell if he's worried. Yeah, and that's a great point, especially like even when he's, you know, in that third round and again, was it the fifth round? Is it the last round where he at least seemed like he was almost going to get stopped there at the end? Uh, but you're right. Robert Whitaker just like never gets shaken. He never never loses his confidence, never loses his poise. And, you know, the thing that, that struck me the most about this fight, aside from the fact that Robert Whitaker just looks like a goddamn great middleweight. He's big. He's He's... Uh, mobile. He's dangerous. The thing that struck me the most was how unafraid. Like, and maybe unafraid isn't even the right word because you're talking about two professional mixed martial arts fighters here. But just like sort of unconcerned about Yoel Romero that he looked, uh, especially early on. Even though you're right, he never really seemed to get his confidence taken from him in this fight, even when things turned ugly for him. But like, Yoel Romero is scary. Like that is a scary dude, and I think anybody would admit that. And Robert Whitaker's out there hanging the lead hand down by his knee, basically trying to bait Yoel Romero into trying to punch him, just looking like he doesn't even care. Like Yoel Romero is some jerk off the street. I thought that was imp the, the most impressive thing to me in this fight, aside from like, you know, Robert Whitaker retains his title and comes out of this thing just looking like like gangbusters at 185 pounds. Are, are we done with the Robert Whitaker Yoel Romero series until further notice? Well... It's 2-0 for Whitaker. This one's pretty close. You could argue it. Yeah, but. is there any controversy in this decision is what I was going to ask. Because, like, I mean, thank God Yoel Romero didn't win this thing after missing weight, right? Because right. then you would have been, yeah, would have had to do the thing all over again. The only thing that could lead to a third Bobby Knuckles, Yoel Romero fight would be if there's any legitimate controversy over the decision, which I don't really think there is, or if Yoel Romero just continues to be the scariest person at 185 pounds and just, you know, keeps knocking off everybody else with extreme prejudice. Yeah. Uh, all right. Here's one from Dwayne Herman. People keep talking about new interim UFC champion Colby Covington's gimmick and the idea that being hated is the goal because people will want to see him lose. But I had no desire to watch Covington this weekend and didn't order the pay-per-view as a result. Being black and dealing with Trump supporters and other weird racists every day is bad enough. My interest in the UFC product lowers the more it centers around people like Covington and McGregor. Can mixed martial artists learn to develop personality without being incendiary scumbags? Now that's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question and it really uh, it brings up a, a topic that we don't talk about a lot with, with MMA. 
and especially with the UFC product and, and how it's marketed and, and who it's marketed to. But like for a long time, let's just say for its entire history, like the UFC has been regarded as primarily uh, of interest to white meathead bros, right? Which got your bedazzled jeans and your affliction shirt and you, you've got a, the sleeves rolled up down at Buffalo Wild Wings. Right. You got the Chuck, Mo- Chuck Hawk. Uh, mohawk going on even mm-hmm. while you're you're balding in the back and it looks stupid i mean it sounds like you actually are just describing chuck liddell right now but <laughs> like yeah like that's you just described the archetypal like ufc fan right the stereotypical ufc fan uh and i don't necessarily know that that stereotype is inaccurate i think that it's probably uh you know painfully accurate in terms of like who followed this sport, especially during the, the heyday of the UFC. And I think that like the thing that you need to talk about in regards to that is like how the UFC has been marketed, who owns it and what they are interested in. Right. Because I think that this email makes a solid point that like, if you're, if you're marketing yourself largely around guys like Colby Covington, and we, I guess we can talk about the intent of Colby Covington more in a minute and guys like Conor McGregor, who, you know, doesn't necessarily have, the greatest history in the world uh, when it comes to race relations either. Like what message are you sending both to your fans and like, who are you excluding from the tent? Right? Because like, as we have talked about a number of times on the show before, there are lots of, of formidable groups of people out there that the UFC just doesn't seem to care about marketing itself to at all. Yeah. Well, the question to me, uh, like the question here at the end, can mixed martial artists learn to develop personality without being incendiary scumbags? does highlight something because it seems like Colby Covington is a response in a way, whether intentionally or not, subconsciously or unconsciously or whatever, whether it's something about the what it takes to stand out in the UFC right now. Because we've talked about this before, that when everybody's dressed in the same Reebok and there's fights almost every damn weekend and it's really hard to get something that will stick in the minds of fans that they'll remember and that they will care about. And more subtle and probably more like authentic, I don't even want to say gimmicks, but just like personality elements, like we talk about Gregor Gillespie as a great example of that, just don't seem to create enough noise to to get attention. And Colby Covington seems like a response to that problem, whether he knows that he's he is that or not. It seems like he's just decided like, okay, the only way to get attention is by being as fucking awful as possible. Like, they won't be able to ignore me because I'm so, like, insufferable. Yeah. And I I kind of understand how an MMA fighter, especially somebody, like, if you're looking at somebody else in the UFC ranks, somebody maybe there are two fights in their UFC career, and they're like, okay, I got to do something to get noticed here. Everybody's telling me to promote myself. They're they're talking about making the most of my mic time. Look at this guy. Is that what I have to do? Is that what I must become? And if that is the case, that's a sad state of affairs. Yeah. Because people do not like, like, like even the, the extent to which it's like, okay, he's trying to get you to watch because you hate him. You could say that it's working to a certain extent because of Tyron Woodley. Is He's going to jump on board and be like, all right, I've never wanted to beat somebody up so bad in my life. But in that same video, Tyron Woodley, I think, made a good point where he was like, this guy and his gimmick fucking suck, and the only reason people are going for it is because we got nothing else going right now. Uh, and he pointed out, you know, John Jones out, Ronda Rousey's out, Conor McGregor's out. Uh, people want something, and this is the closest to something that there is. And so people are like, fine, I guess. Uh, but as, you know, we talked before about the pay-per-view sales, it seems like 
it's not really going to be that successful with Colby Covington. Yeah, it's interesting to, uh, to wonder where Colby Covington would be if he didn't go that route, right? Because this win against Rafael Dos Anjos, UFC 225, to capture the interim welterweight championship is his sixth in a row. And clearly, if you look at the guy, he's got the credentials, the amateur credentials, to be an outstanding MMA fighter. His only career loss is as he got choked out by Worley Alves at UFC 194 in his second UFC fight. Other than that, well, he's been pretty goddamn good. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's like if he hadn't made himself insufferable, would he be toiling away? Just another wrestler with a crew cut? Right. On the undercard of like next week's Donald Cerrone, Leon Edwards. Yes. Fight over in Singapore. Yes. That's what he'd be doing. Yeah, so, I mean, a pardon me for the radio silence, but that just makes me wonder, like... No, you had a moment. You had a moment yeah, of existential despair. I could see I did. it on your face. I did, because, like, does, that means that, like, he's been successful in what he is doing here. And I, you know, I don't... I, part of, like, Kobe Covington knows exactly what he's doing, right? But it also seems like he kind of means it all, also. It doesn't seem <laughs> yes, like it's yeah. totally an act. Uh but you, but it's true. Like this is a good uh, question. Like from the perspective of like a black fan who's going like, all right, hey, it's one thing if you were a a white UFC fan going like, oh, this dude's thing is that he's racist. I get it. Uh, and if you come from a, a different perspective on it, you'd be like, why why are you guys all encouraging this? Why do you guys think that this is like somehow so dumb it's funny? Um, because uh, if you're on a, a different you're coming at it from a different background where, you know, especially the Brazilian fans where we like to think of them as like just so easily riled up. And so that's why it's a good target for somebody like Colby Covington. Oh, go call the Brazilians animals. Everybody will be like, ha, 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 while the Brazilians threaten to stab you in the neck. Uh, and it's not so funny probably if you're a Brazilian fan. And so it, it does – it is worth asking I think like if the UFC is saying like, okay, we see this guy and we want to reward his efforts at promotion uh, even if it's – the whole idea is that it's like infuriatingly awful promotion. What are you saying to everybody who is not, you know, down at Buffalo Wild Wings in their bedazzled jeans? Right. Well, and it feels like it's almost like it, it, it throws back to the Greg Hardy conversation, right? Where it's like, yeah, man, I feel like Greg Hardy is probably an awful person. Uh, but the UFC is going to use him because they feel like he can foster this notoriety that's going to make people tune in one way or the other. And I think that like, once again, like we see in Colby Covenden, like even if you are pretending to be a supervillain, as he calls himself, and like kind of a terrible douchebag, like that's working for him. It's getting him places that he wouldn't be if he if he hadn't done that. And so it's kind of like the awful reality of what, what we have when we take a, a sport of mixed martial arts fighting and try to figure out how to monetize it, essentially turning it into quote unquote entertainment. Right. And so like, yeah, that to me, like that's a, a sobering and kind of terrible fact about this sport where it's like whatever you can do to make yourself stand out from the crowd works, even if it is to be the worst person in the world. Uh, and, and like, yeah, man, that it's one of several factors about this sport that occasionally makes me feel like, what, like, what are we doing? Uh, this reminds me of a tweet. I wish I could remember who tweeted this, but that, uh, if we do get a Tyron Woodley, Colby Covington title unification about match, if the UFC still named pay-per-views, this one would be UFC Woodley versus Covington comments disabled. Next question this week comes to us from Tom Finney. He writes, with all the issues around weight cutting, including Romero at UFC 225, I have an idea. Have the fighters weigh in on the day 
weigh in on the day before. However, also have them weigh in before the fight. And if they weigh more than the next division, for example, 135 fight can't fighter can't weigh more than 145, 155 or can't weigh more than 170, then they are ineligible for fight of the night bonuses or titles and lose, say, 10% of their pay. This might encourage more fighters to cut less weight. Uh, this is sort of what Thompson Till had for their fight, a maximum weight limit. I mean, this is a thing that is done, right? There are uh, some athletic commissions in some sports that do a second weigh-in, and occasionally that'll be a thing where you can't be, you can't have gained some percentage back. Or like there's a there's an upper limit. We, but we've seen it, like you, he mentions the uh, Thompson Till fight, and we've seen it in other instances where if you miss weight, and then part of the stipulation for letting the fight go on will be that you have to hit a certain weight with the second weigh-in. But then the question becomes, and what if you don't? Uh, we're going to call the fight off. Because that's the thing nobody wants to do when it comes to like punishments for missing weight. Nobody wants to see, like, even if you come in overweight, the pressure's still going to be on the other guy to take the fight. And we've seen, I can't remember who it was, but somebody who was supposed to hit a mark on fight night because of missing weight. And then afterwards, it, we heard they didn't hit it, and they claimed that there was some confusion about it and everything. It's always, you come back to the, or what, aspect of that question. Right. And while I like the idea of getting a weigh-in before they step in the cage. We get a better idea of where they actually are when they're fighting. I'm always concerned whenever we start to institute that weigh-in close to the fight that you're just encouraging fighters to make it more dangerous on themselves. Right. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, if you're an MMA fighter and your natural walking around weight is 175 and you're fighting at lightweight, you're just going to not rehydrate. Right? Yeah. You're just going to keep yourself under 170 until you have that second weigh-in, and then, in a rush, try to, like, hydrate up as much as you can and get back to your normal weight and go out and fight, which is, you know, uh, even more dangerous, potentially even more dangerous than just having the one weigh-in. Uh, so, like, th th these these rules and regulation questions a lot of times are so vexing because motherfuckers are gonna, just going to break them. They're going to do whatever they can to get what they think is an advantage or sneak in under the limit or whatever. So, like, a lot of these ideas that seem sensible when you lay them out, uh, kind of like the morning weigh-in, frankly, like, seem sensible until you actually see it in practice, and then you're like, oh, wait, this is not actually not that cool. Right. Well, yeah, because, like, somebody mentioned, uh, you know, when everybody's trying to figure out what to do about weigh-ins and when to have them and everything, and somebody mentioned, okay, why not do weigh-ins? How about let's do them Thursday? The fight's on Saturday. Let's do them Thursday. That way there's plenty of time to recover. Well, hell, let's do them the week before. Let's do them a month out. How about when you sign the papers, we weigh in, and then we we call it good. I mean, the idea of the weigh-in is to make sure that, like, ostensibly, everybody's going in the cage at around the same size, that you're fighting guys around the same size. But we want to do the weigh-ins beforehand to give everybody a chance to recover, and that's, you know, the argument is that the morning weigh-ins aren't working because people think they have a longer recovery time, and so they make more drastic cuts or something. But we always have to take into account the human element, which is, yeah, obviously... If that's what we were really trying to do is get a weigh-in of, like, what you're fighting at, then we should have them weigh in right before they fight. But we just know what people would do. Like, yeah. we, we have to take into account what they would do and that it would be way more dangerous. I mean, I, I again, think that it's such a big, like, cultural problem in MMA. That's the only way you're going to address it is to get people to kind of start to realize that they don't need to make these drastic cuts and that, you know, especially if you look at a guy like Robert Whitaker, who was a welterweight and now has found a lot of success in the middle. You, I guess you're just hoping that over time people see and people start abandoning the idea that I should cut as much weight as I possibly can and therefore that will equal success. But that seems like a, a slow road to get there. 
Um, all right, I'm going to skip down to this one. Uh, Colin Bringington. I assume he plays for Liverpool or something. Uh, assuming Rashad Evans walks away after his loss to Anthony Smith this past weekend, how will you guys remember Sugar Rashad? Great question. Uh, First of all, do you think he should walk away? He seemed noncommittal about it, but didn't seem like I am, you know, didn't do the Diego Sanchez. I am, you know, absolutely convinced that I will fight on. Didn't seem like, okay, well, that was it for me. Uh, seemed like he was finding some measure of peace. Regardless, what would you like to see him do? Well, you got five losses in a row now for Rashad Evans. Uh, seven of his last nine. His last two wins are Dan Henderson and Chael Sonnen back in 2013. Uh, you know, only only two stoppages. He got knocked out by Glover Deshira, and then, of course, he gets uh, knocked out by Anthony Smith at UFC 225. Boy, man, man, I don't know. Like, the the, like... The humanist in me says, yeah, it's probably time for Rashad Evans to to call it a career at 38 years old and, and walk away. But, like, the realist in me says, like, these guys can do whatever they want. It's their bodies. It's their athletic career. They have a short window to earn as much money as they as they can. And, like, if you, do, if you walk away, you better make sure that that's what you want to do because if not, you're going to be back two years from now in Bellator uh, fighting Ryan Bader for the lightweight, light heavyweight title. Um, you act like that's the worst case scenario. Well, that's the real scenario, right? Not necessarily worst case, but like that's that's the real scenario for Rashad Evans. I just want Rashad Evans to do what feels like best for him, like true for him, because Rashad Evans, despite the fact that especially later in the career he's kind of faded into the woodwork of the of the UFC machine, like is a thoughtful person and a smart guy and a good a good interview and like. You get the the impression, you know, we don't really know any of these guys on a personal level, but you get the impression that Rashad Evans is a good person. And, like, he's one of the many, many people in the sport that you wouldn't want to see bad things happen to because they stuck around too long. Yeah. Well, and that's the question about how you remember Rashad Evans. That's how I'll remember him is at, from the times that I've interviewed him and always been really impressed with uh, kind of his ability to uh, – it makes you seem like you're asking a question. He's really considering it. And a lot of times fighters don't do that for reasons that I think are kind of like, um, for protecting themselves. I think fighters a lot of times are concerned. Like, Hey, if I do these interviews and people are asking me questions, especially when the questions are like, Hey, do you feel like you need to win this next one? Otherwise your career is in the toilet or Hey, do you feel like you're almost done here that, uh, you know, you don't have it anymore. And it is like, especially if you're doing one of those days where you're doing like a dozen phone interviews, I'm sure it feels dangerous that people are putting these ideas in your head, even if they don't really mean to, even if they're legitimate questions that you, I think fighters sometimes get it. Like I'm concerned about the potential damage that these people can do to me by insinuating these things all the time. And so I, therefore like I'll kind of put up a wall and won't think about them. And you can feel them doing that in the interview. Sometimes you ask somebody something and it's like, okay, there could be an interesting thing to talk about here, but anything you're just knocking it back, not letting it penetrate your mind at all to even think about it. And Rashad Evans, even when you were asking him about something that was, you know, might be uncomfortable, like uh, the situation that happened with him and John Jones at, at Jackson Winkle John MMA, anything you would ask him about, it seemed like he was willing to kind of go there with you, to, to consider it himself, to give you a real honest answer, uh, whatever that might end up being in the end. Uh, and that's kind of uncommon. And that's one of the things that I think really made me feel like, man, he never got a truly fair shake from the fans. The fans seemed like they decided they hated Rashad Evans kind of early on and nothing he could do could really convince them otherwise. Yeah. 
I, this is just my own perception, but I will also say that I kind of remember Rashad Evans as perhaps the first real interesting winner of the Ultimate Fighter. Because remember on season one, we got uh, Forrest Griffin and Stefan Bonner both got in. Well, a bunch of guys got in for the first season, but Forrest Griffin and Stefan Bonner uh, got in on, on fight night. And then Diego Sanchez obviously was the uh, middleweight, I believe, uh, contract winner from that first season. In season two, where Rashad Evans at, at 5'10 and 225 pounds wins the heavyweight division, it kind of seemed like he was the winner that they didn't want. Yeah. Like, you remember he was like Matt Hughes, said he was a showboat, didn't want him on his team. However, you know, however much of that was just reality television drama, we'll never know. But like, it kind of felt like, at least in the final, that the UFC wanted Brad Imes to come out of that thing as the winner. So when Rashad Evans won it and, and got the contract and got in the UFC, and then of course later became light heavyweight champion, uh, it gave me the, it like, it made the ultimate fighter seem uh, relevant to me, like, uh, or, or like, Hey man, we're dealing with a thing here that they can't necessarily totally control. Like they might get this person who to me seems interesting, but the UFC kind of seems like he's not there. He wasn't their top choice. Uh, so I will remember Rashad Evans as, as like making the ultimate fighter feel ooh, dangerous. Next question this week comes to us from Dolby Smythe, who I assume is an English premier league soccer player or an alias of some kind. Hope he's doing well in the world cup. Do you see our team Belgium? Yeah, not a three nothing three nothing victory today. That's just a crushing blow considering how the rest of the World Cup has been going, right? Like that's that's a squash match right there. That's right. I mean, I don't want to give us too much credit, but since we decided to become huge Belgium fans, Belgium, the official World Cup team of the co-main event podcast. That's right. Go Red Devils. They are they're undefeated since they have the support of the CME. I assume they're going to win the whole thing. Now, that's how this goes? Now, assuming they don't piss us off. Anyway, Dolby Smythe writes, how close to the end of the line are we for Cowboy Cerrone? I know we all assume he'll keep taking MMA fights once every two weeks until they put him six feet under, but the recent history of the Cowboy hasn't been great. He lost three in a row before breaking the streak against Yancey Medeiros. Now he's fighting Leon Edwards in Singapore. Where's all this going? So, Ben, well, I think that Dolby Smythe is right here to say that Cowboy Cerrone will likely soldier on as an MMA fighter as long as he damn well pleases. To me, the question is, have we reached the stage where the Cowboy Cerrone approach, the Cowboy Cerrone gimmick, if you will, has actually started to work against Cowboy Cerrone? Uh, he got the big win over Yancey Medeiros to kind of get himself off the schneid of that three-fight losing streak. But now we see that he is the main event of this somewhat low-profile UFC event in Singapore against a pretty darn tough dude. In Leon Edwards, I think Cowboy Cerrone uh, is going off as almost a two-to-one underdog in this fight. Like, is the anyone, anytime, anywhere Cowboy Cerrone thing ultimately, like, bad for Cowboy Cerrone at this point? Well, I don't know if you say, like, at this point, like, it's something new, because it feels like that's the question we've been asking about him for years. Because remember, it was before, like, hey... Uh, he, he can't win the big one, maybe in part because he's trying to fight five to seven times a year. Uh, but then when he takes some time off and he, he does go after the big one, still doesn't win it. And he decides, Hey, screw it. I'm done chasing this title. I'm just going to get in there and fight, man, whatever, make my money, uh, whoever you got. And that seems to be, you know, also mixed results for him, especially recently. Um, one thing I'd like to know, I want to show you what this poster looks like for Cowboy versus Edwards down there in Singapore. What what is happening in this poster? Because is this is this the poster for we don't give a fuck we mailed it in? 
Is that what we're looking at? It looks it looks like some county fair shit. Yeah. Like you stand in front of the background. They take your picture. No, it looks like a seventh grade class photo from the 90s. I can't even tell what it's supposed to be. Is it supposed to be like some kind of like otherworldly yeah. extraterrestrial glow? But then also, what is this? It looks like there's a leaf. It looks like a giant leaf behind them. Well, there is a leaf behind them. It looks like they're what like... What the fuck is happening? In On the set of like that terrible Green Lantern movie. Yeah, yes. They made a while ago or like maybe like a low budget Aquaman set. Here's my question. Is this Is this on the Fight Pass or is this on Fox Sports 1? Well, it's in Singapore, so let's let's take a look. Uh, fight Pass, whole thing's Fight Pass. Okay, so this this event is on the Fight Pass. Does a physical copy of that poster exist anywhere in the world? Well, what are they going to sign? True, good point. Do they do that for Fight Pass events? I they all get together and sign a poster, and then uh, they sell them, and the fighters don't get any money. I would assume that they do that. Uh, maybe they have a different. I mean, this one, it's just so weird. I don't even know what what color pen you could sign on that people would even see. The UFC clearly still wants to use Cowboy Cerrone as Cowboy Cerrone, right? Because he's main eventing this event in Singapore, though he they may sort of be using him here as a springboard for Leon Edwards. Uh, but have you noticed a, a shift in the Cowboy Cerrone uh, profile in the wake of him, like, briefly, what was it, the MMAFA? Is that what he teamed up with? No, um, he was in the MoMA. Oh, MoMA. That's right. Bjorn like, Rebney and... Remember he did the MoMA thing for like 24 hours and then backed out really quickly and like had... There was a hot minute where Cowboy Cerrone seemed like he was interested in, in fighter rights. Well, and every once in a while he'll come around to that, right? Yeah, but like uh, in the wake of that, has his profile lessened a ton or am I just imposing that view on, on a thing that doesn't exist? Here's an idea. What if... The whole, not I don't want to say gimmick again because it it downplays it. But what if the whole idea where you're the guy who just shows up as much as he can, fights whoever, you just tell him what time he needs to be down at the arena, and he'll be down there with his gear ready to fight. What if that's just not as impressive or noticeable in an era where there are constant fights, where it seems like okay, we we see somebody, they disappear for a few months, they pop back up, we go, oh yeah, that guy. And if you pop back up more frequently, we say, oh, yeah, that guy a little more often, but it doesn't seem like that big of a difference. Yeah, that seems right to me. Next question this week comes to us from Ethan Andrews. He writes, before UFC 225, I heard a lot of fighters say in interviews that they were making use of the UFC's Performance Institute. All of them seemed happy with the results. And as I'm thinking about it, I've only heard good things about the UFC PI. But what is it? Is it primarily for rehabilitation or do fighters train there? Do UFC fighters get to use it for free or do they pay? If they pay, how is it not a company store? Uh, so, Ben, the UFC uh, Performance Institute is, in fact, a giant gym in uh, Las Vegas, I think on the same complex as the uh, as the UFC headquarters. Uh, and it is, you know, it's it's definitely a factor at this point in training. I just saw today they, the UFC, what was it? UFC Corporate Communications just emailed out a thing that said UFC Performance Institute publishes groundbreaking analysis of the sport of MMA. Uh, so like ground was broken in that ground, analysis. ground was breaking break broken. Uh, the UFC Performance Institute is definitely a thing in the landscape of the sport now, but it feels weird to me that like it, it's the, it seems as though like the UFC kind of wants it to fly under the radar, or at least they haven't been really as vocal about it as I expected them to be, or like they haven't, 
they haven't shown it off, I guess, as much as I as I thought they would. Really? Yeah. I feel like they've shown it off a lot. You think so? Yeah. Well, and as far as the question about uh, do fighters pay and everything, like from what I've heard of fighters, you pay to get there. Where you know, if you want to go train there for a few weeks, um, but then one one of the things that I've heard, especially maybe guys lower down the totem pole that they really like, is being able to eat there. Yeah, being able to get like meals there for free uh, when you're when you're there training, or at least you know get a couple meals out of the day there. So uh, yeah, I mean it, it is providing like a, a tangible benefit. It's not like a a thing. It's not really a company store kind of thing. Although I, I appreciate the let's let's go in with a healthy skepticism of something like that. And for some people who, you know, if you're Vegas-based or if you're in the area more, I can see how uh, it offers a lot more benefits that you want to go and take advantage of. And just like a lot of people have had good things to say, like even coaches, like saying like, okay, I took my fighter there and they just – they did some testing that gave us good information to go off of, uh, just sent us home with some new ideas to think about. So it does seem like they are they are doing good stuff for fighters there. Uh, it's also though – you always wonder, is this uh, a thing that everybody can has equal opportunity to take advantage of? Yeah. Especially because we, we talked about a little bit in the run-up to that uh, Stipe Miocic-Francis Ngannou fight where Francis Ngannou was basically just posted up at the UFC Performance yeah. Institute. Like that was his gym, right. basically living in Las Vegas and training there and asking Stipe, like, so what do you make of it? Where they seem really into your opponent and his gym is basically the UFC gym. Do you, do you do you feel like that's a little weird? Do you feel like maybe that says that they want him to win? And uh, you could tell that that question had entered Stipe's mind. Yeah, not quite as bad maybe as when Conor McGregor was basically training at, at uh, Lorenzo Fertitta's private gym. Remember that? When he was staying in a Fertitta property and like uh, using uh, the Fertitta's private gym. I guess the devil's advocate question also would be like, hey, man, it's great that the UFC has the UFC Performance Institute. Uh, everybody's been saying for a long time that we need to figure out the best way to train in this sport so people aren't just constantly getting injured. Uh, but at the same time, like, are, is the UFC then just even further consolidating its control over the sport, right? Like, if I were uh, a coach, an MMA coach, running a, a successful MMA gym, I might look askance at the UFC Performance Institute and think, ah, uh, what's going on here? Are we, is the ultimate goal that like we will all just be independent contractors working for the UFC someday? Well, I feel very confident saying that if you are an MMA coach, the chances of you using the term look askance, very low. Pretty low. All right, let's do one more. Your pick. We got one more. Uh, okay. This one from Chris Coleman. Bad news, buds. A madman has hidden a bomb in a microwave somewhere in the greater Missoula area. It could be hiding in any home in town. Well, practically any home. The police have the guy in custody, but he ain't discoursing. Fortunately, the local fuzz plays fast and loose with the rules, and they don't mind employing the fine art of Dundasso to get what they need. So naturally, they call in the master and a local hockey tough to extract the details. The clock is ticking, so choose your weapon wisely. Which form of torture will you use to get him to sing? Nick Lent's poetry recital? Sir Nigel reads Angela Magana's Twitter timeline, everyone dons Verdum masks, or Colby Covington promo marathon. I mean, the topical answer is Colby Covington promo marathon, right? Man. Play that super loud so he can't sleep. Whose poetry is Nick Lentz reciting? That's, that's, <laughs> that's I mean, the Nick Lentz originals, I think, right? He's the poet laureate of the UFC. So Doug Crosby's poem, then? That's what he's doing? Yeah, maybe so. 
Because that might. I mean, be the all worst. these are bad. Like no one wants no one wants any of these to happen. Sir Nigel reading Angela Magana's Twitter timeline reminds me of the review of Scorched Earth. Almost fun for a while. <laughs> Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, we will be back next week to tell you everything that happened at the Donald Cerrone versus Leon Edwards uh, UFC in Singapore. You also got Ovin St. Prue against Tyson Pedro as the co-main there. Li Jing Liang returns from digging his fingers into the eyes of Jake Matthews to get right back on the main card of a UFC event. Uh, and then perhaps we will look ahead to that crazy international fight week featuring the finals to some damn Ultimate Fighter, as well as UFC 226, Miocic versus Cormier. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. I had to go home and get reading, pick up that Tito Ortiz book. Cup of, cup of Earl Grey, a Tito Ortiz book, the sound of the rain lightly falling outside. What else can you want? Someone told me you can jet through the Tito Ortiz book of an afternoon. I mean, if you believe I mean, in self-abuse, yeah, I suppose yeah, you can do that. If you've got the stuff, you got the...